0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Academic Life. This is the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I'm the podcast creator and the show host, Dr. Christina Gessler. And today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Jasmine L. Harris, the author of Black Women, Ivory Tower Revealing the Lies of White Supremacy in American Education. Welcome to the show, Dr. Harris.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I am so glad that you're here and that you're going to share about your book with listeners. Before we do that, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Of course. I am a professor of sociology and African-American studies Currently, I am also the program coordinator of the African-American Studies program at the University of Texas at San Antonio.
0: And you have a new book out, uh, Black Women, Ivory Tower, Revealing the Lies of White Supremacy in American Education. Could you give listeners a synopsis of what this book is about?
1: This book explores the historical foundations of higher education in the United States and uses that understanding of the a history of the institution and the structure and culture of the institutions that were created as a part of higher education in the United States to examine the experiences of Black women and the impact on their experiences in higher education and their ability to be successful in higher education.
0: And you tell us in the book explicitly, particularly when we get to the ending part, chapter eight, benediction, what really inspired you to write this book? But it's also threaded throughout the book, um, your lived experiences and your family history. Can you share with listeners what inspired you to write it? Sure. Um, I think that
1: my own anger at the experiences that I had was really the inspiration for writing this book. I often complained to my parents, my family, my husband, about the experiences that I was having as a faculty member um, in higher education. And as I started to reflect on those experiences, I realized that they didn't just start when I became a professor, but in fact, were embedded across all of my life um, and my experiences in school from a very young age. And it was that realization, you know, that came so late in life that made me angry and it made me want to be able to arm other Black women and girls at school with the information and the understandings that I didn't have so that they could better prepare themselves and arm themselves for what is really, you know, a battle for uh, belonging, uh, for voice in, in higher education in particular, but in education across the uh, American landscape um, in ways that that I didn't have and that I wasn't prepared to.
0: The theme of wanting to belong, of belonging, is threaded throughout the book. Uh, and the reality is also threaded throughout that why it is the way that it is becomes unpacked more and more as we go through the book. But you start us off with your arrival at Vassar, Um, you're a new student, you're finding out how the campus is laid out, you're on a tour with someone, and the person who's giving the tour starts talking about how they're a legacy admission. Can you take us back to when you arrived at Vassar and that stepping onto a campus that has admitted you, but not necessarily accepted you?
1: Yeah. And, you know, when I arrived, I don't think that I realized that I hadn't been accepted and that I likely was not going to be accepted. I always imagined going to college as this new world that all of us, new students, freshmen, would be... um, exploring together. Right. Um, And that we would all have a measure of unknown about the campus, about the culture, about what it means to be a college student. And um, from, you know, the very first moments with uh, other students, I realized that that was not the case. Um, You know, I I tell the story in the book of um, the girl who's Grandmother and great-grandmother also attended the school. Um, One of the uh, boys who lived in the room next door to mine, uh, his grandmother was named alumni of the decade that year. Um, uh, Another uh, boy on the same hall that I lived on, his um, grandmother had donated the money to build the um, art museum on campus and it was named after her. That's not in the book, um, but uh, is uh, a, a true story as well. And I was shocked, you know, to, to, to be perfectly honest. It never occurred to me that I was going to be going to this school with a bunch of people who already had deep lasting ties to the institution th- th- who had already been on campus many times, not just, you know, on campus visits, but over the course of their lives with their family for special events and, and things like that. And so, um, I- You know, as I was traveling there, when I was on the plane, for example, I didn't think, you know, oh, this is going to be a place where I won't belong. In fact, I was excited. To you know, embark on this new journey with a bunch of other people who were also excited to embark on this new journey. And what I what I found when I got there was um, a structure and a, and a culture that was already pre-made and prefabricated for certain students. Um, and I realized very quickly that I was not one of them.
0: And so the starting place isn't in the same starting place for everyone. It's a false idea that the beginning is the first day.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And, and how hard is that when you are
1: starting college, which is already you know such a different landscape? than high school, right? And and for me, I, I grew up in Minneapolis and I was now in New York, you know, and so I'm a thousand miles away from any family. And I am, you know, ready and, and prepared in some ways for all of the unknowns. But this was an additional unknown that I had not had not adequately prepared for or been prepared for.
0: You share in different places in the book about what that does to your self-esteem, to your self-trust, that you develop some anxiety, some health concerns, and the work that your research did to move it outside of what did I do wrong, am I enough to Why is the institution set up this way? What did your research reveal?
1: Well, it revealed that, you know, since the inception of higher education in this country, these schools have been specifically made to keep people like me, Black women and girls out um, and to Educate a populace of, specifically upper class white men. Um, Harvard and William and Mary are thought of as the the first. Two uh, institutions of higher education in the United States—they sort of argue about uh, who was the first, um, but that that honor is generally given to Harvard. Although William and Mary would like to, you know, have a word about that. Um, and Harvard opens in 1639, I believe, uh, or 1637. I may have the dates wrong there. Um, But it is, you know, specifically for uh, this class of white men to educate and develop the political and business leaders of the day, right? And the idea is that we will continue to perpetually develop this populace of people to act as the ruling class in the United States. And so Harvard is opened and then Yale and Princeton soon after modeling themselves after Harvard with this same idea. Um, Interestingly, and I don't talk about this much in the book, um, though I probably should have... There is a lot of um, labor of enslaved people that is being used on these campuses at their inception and over the first 200 years or so that is really important to the day-to-day functioning of the institutions. And so much like so much else in the United States, we are there. Black people are there, right? But we are the laborers. We are the, the the people who are keeping the engine of the school running. And that labor is rendered invisible in a lot of ways. Um, when, uh, uh, this is a, a story that's not in the book, but when I uh, first got to Vassar, um, something else that I realized, I, I, I talked about the, the boys who lived next door um, my freshman year. They lived in a, a two-room double. So I think now all of the dorms have been renovated. But at the time, the school uh, hadn't renovated any of the the dormitory buildings. And there was actually a, a lot of sort of pride in that, right, that you were living in these Old ivory uh, ivy covered buildings, and um, and they were very much in the the same shape that they had been for hundreds of, of years at that point. And the this two room double, and there were many like it um, in dorms across campus, had one big room that you would walk into, you know, from the hallway, and then a really tiny second room that you could only get to from inside the bigger room. And those were two room doubles. So one person lived in the big room and one person lived in the small room. And uh, I, you know, immediately was like, what is this? You know, why would, why would you build, um, a dorm with rooms where there's such a distinct difference in size, right? Um, and why would the women, because Vassar um, was all women until 1969 when they went co-ed, why would you know women want to, to live this way? And um, what I found after asking around a little bit was that those rooms were for the help quote unquote, right? That is that's how it was positioned to me. I think the person I was talking to did not want to say, you know, for slaves, right? But you know, they sort of positioned it post emancipation and and talked about, you know, the maids that the these rich girls would bring with them to, you know, take care of their needs on a on a day-to-day basis. But before those People that were helping them, women, were maids, they were slaves, right? Um, and because that's what upper-class white women who would attend Vassar. And and I should say that that Vassar is a a seven-sister school. So it was created specifically in opposition to schools like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton for women, because women were not allowed to attend those institutions initially. And each Ivy League school has a seven-sister school companion. So at Harvard, it's Radcliffe um, at Yale it was Vassar and um, and and so that realization that oh goodness not not only is you know the history of this place highly racialized right but there is clear evidence in you know what was then the present day 2001 of you know what my role would have been here, you know, a, a, a hundred years ago, um, and and that was eye opening and uh, a difficult thing to to swallow. Again, as as a, an eighteen year old who was looking forward to this new world, you know, that, that that I was going to share with my peers and, and being confronted with this idea that, you know, historically I wouldn't be sharing this world. I might be here, right? But I would be here to labor and not to
0: learn. And that permeates the entire educational experience, whether there's knowledge that's explicitly shared, or there's a growing feeling that something's not right. It silences you in the classroom. It makes you second guess how you present yourself. Do you want to talk about navigating that?
1: Yeah. You know, when, uh, when you're when I was navigating it as a child and, and even as a college student, I didn't have the language to understand that I was existing within this, you know, historical uh, institutional structure and culture that was built specifically not to educate people like me. Right. And, um, and that was difficult and it, meant that I internalized a lot of things as personal failures, right? As, as individual uh, issues that I myself needed to address. And that caused a lot of psychological and emotional strain. It wasn't until I um, was well into my doctoral program Many years later, when I you know, started to read about institutional racism, about the foundations of higher education, that things started to click for me, um, and, and and having that language and having um, the resources to, to to better understand what had happened to me and in particular, um, reading about Zora Neale Hurston's time at Barnard. Barnard is the uh, sister school, seven sister school companion to Columbia University and, um, Zora Neale Hurston, you know, famous, uh, black woman anthropologist in the Harlem Renaissance, and she was a student at Howard. And with the help of um, a, a you know, rich white benefactor, which you would have to have had at that time as a, as a black woman in the 1920s to be allowed um, admission to a seven sister school like Barnard, um, she was able to transfer. And she, um, I remember reading um, some of her writing about that time where she talks about feeling like the sacred black cow, Um, that, that is, those are her words. And I I talk about this a little bit in the book Um, and a sort of light went off, you know, all of a sudden it was like, oh, I went to a seven sister school. Oh, I felt like this, you know, where folks were trying to, um, you know dress me up both literally and figuratively so that i might better fit within the system recognizing that as is i didn't fit there right and then if i was going to succeed i i needed to do more and um and so you know that's a a heavy uh thing to uncover 7 8 years after You've experienced these things and and already decided that they were reflections of your own um, shortcomings, and so you know it was it was a really important time for me while I was in my doctoral program to to be able to. Read and and then you know later write and explore what it means to be a, a black woman a black woman in these spaces where um, we are historically you know not supposed to to be.
0: You take us through a lot of different numbers uh, in the book, um, the percentages of. Uh, black women who obtain a PhD, the percentages of faculty in the United States who are black, the percentage of that faculty who are tenured, um, the percentage of um, income boost that a black woman would expect from having her higher ed degrees compared to income boost a white male would have with those same degrees. Do you want to talk us through any of these numbers and what they mean practically
1: yeah um,
0: it's so
1: first right the the likelihood that a a black woman like myself would complete a degree is low. Um, and, and black women are, um, you know, less than 5% of all, uh, PhD holders in the United States. So that's the, the first struggle. Right. Um, and then, you know, the, ability to secure a tenure track job is first difficult for everybody, especially in this labor market. Right. Um, but for black women, again, you know, less than 5% of all tenure track jobs are held by black women. Um, and then you know, it's it's the attempt to move up the professional ladder. Right. So you want to get a tenure track job so that you can get tenure and the idea of, of tenure, although, you know, here in the United States, there are some political uh, battles and more conservative states about keeping the tenure system. But the importance of tenure is supposed to be academic freedom meaning that I can um, write about the issues that are important to me, I can teach about the issues that are important to me, I can research uh, among the communities that are important to me without having to worry about the backlash from university administration. So in a lot of ways, getting tenured is the sort of ultimate goal of an academic, um, if for no other reason than it, you know, provides the ability to really focus in on those things that are of most interest to you as an academic. Um, when I was tenured in 2020, I was the first Black woman. To be tenured in my department ever. And, um, that happened the year of the, I'm, I'm saying that questioningly because I can't remember now if it was the year of or the year before the school's sesquicentennial, which is the 150th anniversary. So in 150 years of, of sociology, which is the department that I was working in um, at that institution at the time, no Black woman had ever achieved tenure there And you know the other the other reason you, you sort of alluded to that tenure is important besides academic freedom is because it also puts you in a, a supposedly a different economic, Position right because you receive uh, a raise um, in in your salary or at least at most institutions you receive a raise. Um, what is different for most Black women in, in academia is that we uh, tend to and this is across the board, um, Black women in general, Black people in general, tend to come from families with uh, less accumulated wealth, right? Um, Less disposable income, less um, support systems from family members. uh, When I started my doctoral program in 2008, I was one of 12 um, students in the cohort and one of very few who lived independently, you know, um, did not get economic or financial support or, or much economic or financial support from my family members. And, and that, that's actually, uh, Unheard, not I won't say unheard of, but it's very rare in um in doctoral programs. There are usually a lot of folks whose parents are um, faculty members or PhD holders whose um, parents, especially if they are white students, have significant savings that they can use to support their uh, children as they make their way through the doctoral program. So I was already starting from a bit of a, a disadvantaged economic position. And it was always the hope that getting the PhD and being able to move up the professional ladder in this industry would provide me a measure of class mobility, right? And, and that's the way that we are in the United States, socialized to think about higher education generally, right? Go to college, improve your um, social mobility. So if you get a doctorate or a law degree or a medical degree, that's really supposed to um, expand what is possible in terms of your class status and what i what i came to understand personally but also sort of structurally and culturally is that that's often not the case for black women because of the economic background that they that they come from and and so while we are here in in small numbers the impact on our lives more broadly is much smaller than uh, it would be for our white counterparts.
0: When we try to unpack how we got here, why we aren't further, why we are at this moment, you take us very clearly through the whole history in the book. One um, chapter that helps explain a lot of what you're talking about here is chapter three, the disappearance of black teachers. I think there's a lot there that helps explain the present moment. Can you take us back to what created the disappearance of black teachers and what it means for students now that the legacy is still carried forward? Yeah, it's
1: um, it really begins with Brown versus Board of Education, which is ironic, you know, given that, that Supreme Court decision was meant to improve the educational experiences of Black students in the United States by requiring uh, integration of schools. Um, Previous to the Brown versus Board of Education decision, uh, most of public education in the United States was Racially segregated, um, and what that meant was that most black students were taught by black teachers, and white students were taught by white teachers in all white schools and all black schools. Um, and as you can imagine, the all black schools and in, in black uh, communities and black neighborhoods in the United States had much fewer resources, right? Not not much different from the way that it is today, ironically, again. And, um, you know, they were often using hand-me-down books and um, sort of doing collections within the community to ensure that students had the resources that they needed. But on the other hand, they were also being taught by Black teachers who were highly educated, in part because those uh, few you know, Black folks who were able to get advanced degrees, master's degrees and doctorates um, at the time in the you know, early 1900s, post-Reconstruction and, and and through the Harlem Renaissance and uh, the 30s and, and, and 40s, were not able to get positions at institutions of higher education, because most of them, besides uh, the um, HBCUs, were that HBCUs that were created because um, land grant universities, universities that were built on land that was given to them by the federal government refused to admit black students. Um, and it took, you know, a, a bit of time for HBCUs to be created and, and established as um, viable options for folks. And so you would have. Black students, Black elementary school students, Black high school students being taught by um, doctors, folks with with PhDs, with MDs, um, with uh, master's degrees from the teacher's college at Columbia University, which is where my uh, great Aunt Henrietta was educated. And uh, she and her husband, Ended up back in Malvern, Arkansas, where they were from, teaching at the local black high school because that was that was the only option. And so what that meant is these kids were getting excellent educations because they were being educated by you know folks who were highly educated themselves, which would not have necessarily been the case in uh, white schools. And once the Brown versus Board of Education decision came down and integration began, instead of integrating all schools, right, bringing white students into black schools and black students into white schools, it only went one way black students into white schools, um, often via busing. My mother was a bust um, in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, meaning that she had to get on a a school bus and go to a a school across town, which, you know, in the uh, post-pandemic lockdown world doesn't seem that strange. But in the 50s, 60s, and 70s would have been um, very unusual where students were used to going to the local high school in their neighborhood. And, um, and, And so only doing integration one way, black students into white schools led to the closing of many of the all black high schools, middle schools and elementary schools in these communities and that meant that the faculty in those schools were displaced as well. And it's believed that as many as 40,000 black teachers were lost post Brown versus Board of Education, and were never allowed to re-enter the teaching workforce, which you know leads to the, Overwhelming, uh, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, mismatch in, in terms of the identity of teachers today and the students that they are teaching. Um, again, you know, to use my my great aunt Henrietta as an example, and I, and I talk about this in the book. She and and her husband, she was um, a teacher at Malvern High School, and he was uh, the principal. And post-integration, that high school was closed. And they were, um, probably because they had master's degrees, given the option to join the white integrated high school, but at lesser ranks, Um, And so, you know, they essentially took pay cuts and um, job demotions in order to teach at at white schools. And so what that created is this culture of 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 K through 12 education and and also uh, higher education in the United States where black students are likely to have been taught by white teachers almost exclusively. That was my experience. That is the experience of, of many students today. We we actually did an event um, for the book last night where we had a panel of Black women students here at UTSA talk about their experiences. And, and one of the things that they discussed was how many black teachers they've had over the course of their lives. And the highest number was six, six teachers. And these are college students, some of them seniors in college who are, you know, getting ready to graduate. So over 20 years almost of, of educational experience including, you know, their college experience, they've only been in, in six classes, in six rooms, where they are being taught by someone who has a deep knowledge and understanding of their culture and the impact of their racial identities on their experiences. And that impacts how people learn. I I didn't realize that, you know, when I was a student, that that was affecting how I Learned it affected how I was seen um, in the classroom in the school more broadly. It impacted how I was disciplined. You know, I was an A student who was always in detention, <laughs> who was um, you know constantly being over disciplined for for chewing gum for um, my my skirts being uh, an inch, you know, shorter than my fingertips, when there were, you know, white girls around me who were in much more blatant violation of the dress code. Um, and and I, I used to think, you know, well, I may be smart, but maybe I'm just bad, <laughs> you know, like maybe I'm just a troublemaker. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized that those were minor infractions that I was being um, over surveilled for, you know, watched constantly um, in a way that was, Impacting my, you know, psychological and emotional experience and response to things in ways that I hadn't, I hadn't fully grasped, and so um, it it really is unfortunate that much of the way that the education system in the United States works today is a reflection of the um, Brown versus board of education decision, because that was meant to be a a landmark case. Right. And it was, it was uh, led and spearheaded by black girls and their families wanting to ensure that they had access to the best educations and the best resources. So it came from a positive place, but it, ended up having very negative consequences.
0: In the book, you take us to a a moment where you're with your guidance counselor. Um, To me, it's, it's a moment that sums up so much of what you've been talking about because of all the assumptions he brought to bear on this meeting with you. If you had not had the relationship that you had with your mother to go and talk with her, he would have really impacted what you envisioned for yourself in where to apply to school.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, the the more that I reflect on on that particular story uh, in the book, and it's one that a lot of folks gravitate towards, the more that I recognize what a privilege it has been to have a mother who um, not only had, uh, experience in higher education. She attended the university of Wisconsin, Madison in the mid seventies. Um, so, you know, she had her own experiences as, as being one of the few black women on a, you know, predominantly white campus. Um, but also, you know, by the time that I was applying to colleges, she had also completed a master's degree and was working on a second master's degree. Um, and so not only was it a privilege to have a mother who had those experiences, but also um, that that she was willing to to advocate for me and that she um, made it very clear early on um, in, in my high school career, especially that... Um, That I know that she would be an advocate for me. Um, And the more that I reflect on this particular meeting with the guidance counselor, the more that I think about all of the Black students who have had that same interaction um with their guidance counselors but because their parents you know did not have the same educational background because their parents didn't have the the time or the the wherewithal to advocate for their children in the same way that our outcomes were were totally different right because to to think, you know, okay, I've done well in school. I've I've gotten A's. I'm in the National Honor Society. I'm on the, the track team. I am in the choir. I play an instrument. I, you know, I'm involved in my community. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm running this small little babysitting business, as many of us who were influenced by the Babysitter's Club um, were doing in the 90s. And now I should have my choice of where I want to go to college. And, you know, to have a a guidance counselor look you in the eye and say, I think that you need to put some more realistic schools on your list was a, a deep, blow, you know, to my ego, you know, if nothing else, like, oh, goodness, I, I thought, you know, that I I should have my my pick of, of places where at the very least, I would be a viable candidate, right? Not not to suggest that I should get in everywhere that I apply. But, you know, the idea that Schools uh like Vassar, like like Harvard are, are unrealistic um, simply uh because of what I look like, right? Not because of what my my transcripts look like or what my folder um that, that the guidance counselor was referencing looked at was uh was was eye-opening. Um but you know again to to speak to that privilege, I knew that my mother wasn't going to stand for that, you know, um, if, if for no other reason, then she had helped me create that list. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, she is a, a headstrong woman. And, and so I was lucky that, that I was able to leave that meeting upset, but also confident that something would be done. Right. And, and I didn't know exactly what would be done, but I, but I remember leaving that meeting saying, no, I'm still applying to these schools. Right. And, and if I don't get in, I don't get in, but, but I know that, that I shouldn't and my mother is definitely not going to let this guy tell me, you know, that, that, that these are not options for me. And I know that for so many black students, they didn't leave those meetings feeling that way, right? They they took the guidance counselor's advice and only applied to community colleges or state schools, or, you know, started out trying to get their associate's degree rather than their bachelor's degree. And that's really the beginning of the diversion of black students away from prestigious institutions. Um, When you look at Harvard, Vassar even, which, you know, their um, population of Black students hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. And you see that, you know, consistently and perpetually, the percentage of Black students is, you know, hovering around you know, four, five, six percent, never really making it, you know, all the way up into double digits. And you realize that's not because Black students are not smart. It's not because Black students don't want to attend these kinds of prestigious institutions. It's because the diversion of those students away from these institutions begins long before they ever even get the chance to apply. Right, um, and and that is when we talk about the sort of structure of the American education system and the culture that drives those systems. That's what we're talking about, right? It's not to say that individuals are are racist, right? And and the point of my story about the guidance counselor is not to to paint that person. As a racist, but to paint that person as um, a decision maker within a culture that long ago decided that black students have a particular place in um, in the American education system, and that place is not at the top, and it's not in, in the most prestigious institutions, and so you know sometimes even unconsciously they end up perpetuating these very sort of racist ideas um, and and encouraging those sorts of outcomes
0: to book in that story um, there's a part in the book where you're talking to your dad on the phone and he asks you to call your cousin her daughter is, getting ready to apply for college. And he's hoping you can offer advice. A lot of um, listeners won't have a cousin or neighbor with the resources to just call someone, which is part of why you wrote the book for so many people to see themselves, to know why the institutions function the way they do and to know it's not them. Do you want to tell us about um, the family legacy you have of the women helping each other?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the the interesting things about the process of writing this book was uncovering all of these stories and and sort of thinking about how we might have better helped each other, um, you know, generation to generation, if we had been more comfortable and more sort of informed about the institutionalized nature of what we were experiencing. Um, you know, I think it, my mother is really the first one to say, okay, you know, this is, um, and, and I don't think she ever said to me, you know, this is a racist system and you're going to have to, you know, figure it out, but I am here to advocate for you. And I want you to find um, a, Uh, an experience or a place in higher education where perhaps hopefully you can find some belonging. Um, I talk about in the book how um, she really sort of pushed me in the direction of Vassar and that stemmed from her own experiences at the university of Wisconsin. Right. And, and I remember her saying the last thing that you want as a a black girl is to be at a predominantly white institution. That's also enormous, right? That has tens of thousands of students, because if there's anywhere where they can ignore you, it is there. And so I, I want for you to go to a school where at the very least it's small enough that you can attempt to assert yourself and your needs, and um and be more uh, directive about your learning, and and that was you know a really important point, um and uh you know definitely impacted my decision to attend Vassar. Um, I think, unfortunately, for a long time, because of the experiences that I was having there, that I felt unprepared or unable to offer that same support to my family members. You know, I remember being a college student, this is, this is not in the book, but, and, you know, my, my uncles or my aunts would call and say, you know, can you, can you call your cousin, you know, and, and talk to them about the experience that that you're having at Vassar and, you know, encourage them to go to college. And at the time I couldn't, you know, because I was dealing with, with so much negativity, um, and trauma and and violence you know both symbolic and, and and physical violence on these campuses I just you know I remember always being at a loss like saying to them well I don't know what you want me to say <laughs> you know I'm just trying to to make it here myself and and I remember that being very difficult for them to understand right and and the the interesting thing about this book coming out is, Now, you know, my family members are are starting to read it and and they're coming to me and saying, Wow, you know, I just I had no idea. I I didn't realize what you were experiencing. And now it makes sense, you know, some of the things that you were saying, the the ways that you that were acting and um you know, at that time in your life, and you know, it, it felt it probably felt for them like I was disconnecting. From the family in a lot of ways, and and I was re- in perhaps you know reverting into my shell, you know, for for lack of a, a better metaphor, as a way to try to protect myself in an environment that seemed to be constantly chaotic, and um and and I was always unsure of what would befall me next. And it it wasn't until I started writing this book, you know, um, and and talking to my family about the book and about the stories of, you know, the other educated women in our own family and, you know, telling them about the the stories of these, um, you know, wildly intelligent and uh, successful black women across time that I had never heard of until I started doing research for this book that I think I realized what my role would should be right and and now that is certainly um a role that I play in my family in, in terms of of helping those of them who did not go to college or only went to community college or only went to a college for a year or two to help their children you know through this process and to arm them with the information that I that I didn't have in an effort to, to you know, create a next generation in our family of college educated folks, and 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 folks who were able to be college educated without all of the traumas that came with it for me and for you know so many black women before me, um, and and that is a privilege. You know, I was talking earlier about the the privilege of of having a, a mother with those experiences and 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 being a willing advocate. And I'll, you know, acknowledge that my mother was a, a busy woman and, and she had two daughters and um, she was a, a single parent. My, my parents divorced when I was about 10. And, um, and so, you know, she admittedly didn't have the time to do that for all of her nieces and nephews in, in the way that I think that she wished now that she could have, and so, you know, as the as the next generation, I I do have that ability. I do have that knowledge um, to to advocate for. These women and I want them to know that, and and they do know that now, and and um, and so I spend a lot of time, especially during college application season, uh, helping um, everyone you know, get all of their ducks in a row, figure out you know financial aid and and all of all of the things that are part of the higher education system that are meant to gatekeep right? Um, The cost is meant to gatekeep. I I talk in the book about the cost to attend Vassar when I was there, it was about $45,000 per year. Um, Now, the uh, cost to attend Vassar is eighty five thousand dollars per year, and that is a huge barrier for most uh, Black students, in particular, right? And and so, how do you navigate that? And and because I have that knowledge. I am able to help them you know, jump over those gates that are meant to sort of perpetuate this white upper classness at these um, institutions. And that's a joy, you know. Um, that is uh, something that gives me uh, a measure of, of hope about, at the very least, our, um, you know familial success and and progress over the next hundred years. And my hope with this book is that even though I can't be in everyone's family, that this book can be, and it can be a resource and it can encourage um, Black students, Black women students in particular, to not be uh, discouraged by these gates that that are meant to keep us out and instead give us the tools to figure out our way in.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Jasmine L. Harris, and sharing with us from your book, Black Women, Ivory Tower, Revealing the Lies of White Supremacy in American Education. You've been listening to Academic Life, I hope you will please join us again.